0: We, what we realise we're doing is creating possibilities. Yeah. That's what we're doing. People say we're creating young entrepreneurs. That is true, that's the mechanical term for it. But actually we're unlocking their potential which creates possibilities, right? Because we know um, talent is, is everywhere, but opportunity isn't. And I've always said that if you can't um, access opportunity, you should be able to create your own opportunity.
1: So do much. you uh, do you publish weekly or weekly? Yeah, weekly. Cool. But this month I haven't published though. Okay. Um, just just this month because this space was taken forever and our yeah. yeah, yeah. I get. I, I don't know if you had the similar kind of thing when you moved into your space. The it was a nightmare. Space. And then the thing is like so a, lot a lot of, of work. Long. Things take a lot longer than you think. And yeah, yeah, yeah. with this place, the the issues, I was ordering stuff and mm. then I found I've ordered the wrong adapter for that I've got to send this adapter. Back right, and back. right, and right. Like from Japan and then like, oh man, Right, right, right. No, it was so a headache. Setting long, up that right. space
0: took us. Um so we were in there in September, October and we didn't open till March. But it's a six and a half thousand square foot space is like Fifty desks in there, so it took a lot of time to get because we had to refurb it, put our new floors, paint. There was a lot of work to be to be done. Um, yeah. yeah, so I hear you. It's Six not. It's not still. an easy thing.
1: So, so, were you still paying for the space? Or did you have a grace period?
0: No, no, no. So um, it's in partnership with Brent Council. So Brent Council oh. are under. They're paying for everything. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. Oh, that's cool, man. Yeah, 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 nice. yeah. So,
0: um, yeah. Nice. yeah, it's part of their ten-year digital transformation plan. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh myself and then another entrepreneur called Cess Richards, who runs a platform called Slinky, basically convinced them that mm. there are, well, we just stated the truth that there's barriers for entre- diverse entrepreneurs looking to get into into tech. There's just a bunch of barriers in front of them. Um mm. and if we could use this space to remove one of the barriers, which is having a physical space. Yeah. Then that will be that will move the needle on some of these issues, yeah. and, and they agreed. So it's quite interesting actually
1: because you have got that tech background, mm. but then most people are going to know you for your the education at the ultra. That's right, Because yeah, yeah, yeah. when I was looking into it, I was like oh, you got like a proper, you got tech start, proper tech background. Yeah, then.
0: yeah. So it's interesting. It comes out because it's funny. I was on a um, I'm I'm, a, I'm in a leadership group with some other founders, and we had our kind of peer-to-peer learning thing. Might have been beginning of the week, and then one of the founders had a problem. Um, it was, yeah, they had some kind of problem. And as, and then when they asked me what my opinion on the how, on what the fix was, after I gave it, they said, um, you speak like a marketer, what's your background? And I said, oh, I used to run a digital agency. And they were like, oh, it makes sense because like the way you speak, the way you spoke about it, about what you were going to do or about what he should do, um, didn't sound like education. It sounded like you've got another... Mm you know, um, feather to your cap. So yeah, it comes out like um, the fact that we're strong and that we've got a strong social media following. You know, there's a number of things which when people realise what my background is, it makes sense Mm. what I do now. Like the way in which we do what we do now, it makes sense because of my background. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But you're right. Otherwise people, it it, it kind of, you know, it it might sound strange to people, but it's also the reason why... You know, I'll. We've been successful because I'm using past experiences like everyone else does. Yeah. Do you know what I mean?
1: It's quite interesting actually, because with me as well, yeah. My background is pretty diverse in a sense, because I used to work in fashion.
0: I remember you saying, and, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And then I went into finance, and then doing this more creative mm. work. Like there's all sorts of different threads, and people be like, "What the hell are you doing that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How yeah. does it make sense? Yeah, yeah, that, that's like, right. But to me, it makes perfect sense, because mm. to me, there's a thread. Um, the thread behind it, the thread behind well, most of the things I've been involved in, anyway, has been that social impact thread. Mm. So when I was in finance, not finance, sorry, fashion, mm-hmm. it was a social impact thread, because mm. I run the business, and it was a sustainable business, and we had goals Got about taking the manufacturing back over to Africa and empowering mm. some of the smallholder people over there. And that was the plan and the goal. And I only went into it, not because, well, I, loved, I like creative anyway. I love mm. creative things. But I went into it because I was looking for something to do mm. and reading about where the problems are. And then found out about how mad the fashion industry is
0: mm. and the toxins and
1: the human slave labour. Mm. it's crazy.
0: Mm-hmm. And I was reading
1: about that. And then, I don't know if you remember, in Bangladesh in 2011, I think it was, the Rana Plaza, mm. Rana Plaza factory, a thousand yeah, like, people died. Yeah. That one was obviously big and hit the news mm. and that, but then there's mad stuff in this industry and the pollutants messing mm. up people's ecosystem. I was like, this is mad. we got to do something. Yeah, it's
0: very, mad. <laughs> it's, very mad. it's very mad. It's very mad. I mean, I guess, unlike you, the, I'm, I'm in social impact now, but nothing I did before that was to do with social impact. I mm. literally, the social impact thing was just like, went from zero to 100 overnight. So there was, never a, there was never an impact thread. Even when, to the point where, when we first started Ultra Education, we weren't a social enterprise deliberately, the, but the work we did was, was, was creating impact and I didn't even know, someone had to tell me. Someone, I remember the day someone said to me, do you realise your work is creating social impact? I said, what is that? Mm. I didn't even know <laughs> what the term meant. Was, What's social impact? Oh, because of this, that and the next. I was like, oh, okay, I had no idea. Mm. So it was a complete accident what happened
1: you know what yeah at the virgin event so i might be butchering it a little bit yeah but i remember in your pitch you said something about um you answered your call or you had a calling or you answered something around the call-in yeah, a
0: calling yeah yeah that's right yeah so that's why so this so, so the you know the kind of genesis of ultra was that you know i always say to people coming from the background i was in so finance tech and all the rest of it if someone had told me back then i'd be running a kid's education business I'd be like, why would I want to do that? Mm. I wouldn't, I'd be like, what? Who wants to work with kids <laughs> and then, you know, creating social impact and being socially, who wants to do that? Do you know what I mean? So, but it, the, I had a growing compulsion to, to solve the problem. And it just so happened that I, my experience and my lived experience was perfectly placed to solve the problem. It's like I was made for it. It's like I was, it's like I was made specifically to solve this problem.
1: But like a growing compulsion from where? Like, is it because of your own
0: children? Because of my own children, because of what I saw out in the world of entrepreneurship and, you know, when I would um, go and speak at schools and colleges and I could see the problems there. So there, was, there were a number of different facets that pointed towards the problem, highlighted the fact that what I was doing was was slightly... would be defined as being a bit of an, out, of an outlier. And then me reconciling that with, well, I shouldn't be an outlier. What I'm doing should be normal. This shouldn't be, you know, um, yeah, it shouldn't be considered as different or special or odd. It shouldn't be considered that.
1: What, you mean as in like the, the social impact side of your work shouldn't be No, as... no,
0: I mean, I before, before I started ultra-education, I published like three best-selling books. There was no one in my circle that was doing that. Like back now, loads of people are... Um, putting out books but back in 2010 no one was doing no one was doing that um you know I'd spoken in by 2015 I'd spoken in like 15 different countries on entrepreneurship and tech and I guess what it was was and you know even a friend of mine who I grew up with uh, we were at a um a friend's a mutual friend Stagdew and he said to me you've done well considering you're from Halston and he meant it as a compliment but I thought wow like is that how the world sees it you know considering you're from this point you've done well when actually the people who were in my professional peer group nobody would say that to them no one would say to a white male who does who did what i did you've done well considering they wouldn't say that to them mm. so i just thought nah that can't be right mm. and then when i would go into schools in my area that in the borough that i was born in brent and i would and i would talk about what i've done the kids would be like and you're from brent they wouldn't believe, they'd be be stunned to hear that I grew up in the same area as them, right? So I thought, okay, nah, this problem needs to be solved, like, and it was that started to grow, like, the whole idea of, okay, it became annoying to me, number one, and number two, I thought, hmm, well, that experience is okay for me, but what about the next generation of entrepreneurs? You know, are they going to have a set of lucky accidental incidences that will get them to the point where I have. And you can't, that's not, you, you can't engineer that. That's not a, that's not a, that's not a route. That's not a framework. It's not a blueprint. Um, mine, my journey, I could say was just, it was accident upon accident upon accident. You, you pull that together and here I am. And I thought, hmm, something should be, available to children and young people to deliberately create that mm. journey. Because if you go into the world of private and boarding schools, that journey is deliberate. Yeah, It's deliberate from um, prep school, right? Mm. So they go to prep school, right? Um, from the time they're like five, six years old, they're in prep school and it's prepping them to go to, so prep school would be private it's prepping them to get into a private um, junior school, which is prepping them to get into a private secondary or boarding school, which is prepping them to get into a Russell Group University, mm. which is prepping them to enter into the market at 40 grand a year. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Do you know what
1: I mean? Up from there.
0: All of that. Yeah. So from five years old, their journey, that trajectory is planned. It's completely deliberate. It doesn't happen by accident, right? Um, but... For a, demog- a for a statistic or a demographic like me, that's not planned. It's you know most uh, I would say minority entrepreneurs who've made it would say that it was it was not deliberate. You know they worked um, hard and you know blah blah blah. Yeah. But the journey wasn't like it was fraught with difficulties. It wasn't an easy thing, right? And they, and there had to be some breakthrough moments to get them to where they are. Yeah. Um. And I just thought, nah, because it's just not fair. It's not fair that the fact we have a failing education system, the fact we have a poorly structured careers progression um, uh, pathway for young people, the fact we have low aspirations for them, the fact we deem them disadvantaged, I was like, nah.
1: But then, when you talk about the poorly planned career progression and um, the aspiration section, that's for young people from a certain background. Because, like I said, the ones that go to from particular backgrounds, go to prep schools and whatnot, they don't face those same kind of challenges. They
0: got yeah. Their- so there are uh, approximately ten thousand private and boarding schools in the UK, and there are twenty five thousand state schools. So therefore, <laughs> the majority of truly young people in this country. Do not have that deliberately planned or, or intentional route to a successful career. They just don't have it. It doesn't exist for them, right? So now we have language like structural inequalities and bias, and you know, we have these, we have this language, now this newly found language post-BLM. But we knew that we've known this for decades, right? Mm. There are documentaries um, from the 70s and 80s. Which talk about um, the level of poverty within black and minoritized communities, mm. and the lack of educational provision, and the gaps in employment. Like with, that's like 50 years ago. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's as old as me, right? <laughs> yeah. And you look at you think, wow, we're still it's still happening. Do you know what I mean? So that's why I'm saying that compulsion level grew in me, and I was I was now no longer solely motivated by money because I've been in investment banking and you know I wasn't making millions but I I made enough to know that money doesn't make you happy that money doesn't make you feel better about yourself it's momentary you could have a nice holiday you could buy yourself a watch (coughs) whatever but all of that like you know if you've if you've if you've driven in a Ferrari you will realize how underwhelming it is Mm. it's not life-changing right but as a young man you know in a Kind of masculine setting, the idea is Rolex, Ferrari, all this kind of stuff, right? If you put a Rolex on your on on your wrist, <laughs> yeah. you're like, for me, I'm like, okay, so what, right? It like, yeah. what does that support? What does that? Mean? It's a signalling thing, right? You get in, you drive a Ferrari, you're like, okay, but so what? Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's yeah. like you know there's only so many nice clothes you can wear there's only at some point and this i think typically happens with people who have highly successful careers it's the reason why you see a lot of them at at a point want to give back you know that whole i want to give back because you realize yeah. that material things are meaningless your title in your workplace is meaningless it's not it doesn't fulfill the promise that you were given as a young person that You get a good job, make money, you'll be happy. It's not
1: true. That promise, yeah. When I was in secondary school, because in my school, there was, I don't know, I think it was, I feel like it's like this in a lot of schools where you got a select few teachers who are really for the students. And then Mm. a lot of teachers are, it's a job. They're just doing their job. Cool, whatever. But there was a couple that were really, you know, you could tell they really had a heart for the children. And there was one teacher, he come really late. I must've been like, yeah, 10 or something like that. Mm. And he came as the deputy head. And him, yeah, he came and changed the whole school. Okay, so he came and he made us change the uniform. Mm. He made us well, our year campaigned against it, but the rest <laughs> of the years, the young ones that today started wearing blazers and stuff. We used to walk around with our tires like short and fat. We, right. we used to on yeah, properly. I remember those days. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, he used to kind of stop us in the playground and take a tie for the tire. He would make sure to put it on properly. He used to <laughs> wow. dress you like short out your blazer. He had like That's he dope. really wanted us to look proper, mm. and he was a geography teacher as well. Mm. And in the lessons, yeah, he'll teach us the curriculum and that kind of thing. We used to always go off on tangents, he'll stop, he, like he'll. Get up here yeah, and then sit down on the edge of a table before and be like guys <laughs> just talk about life but he's done it all the time yeah mm-hmm. i remember him once and he, and he points back to what you said about people thinking that um you get these things you get to a stage in the future and then you haven't necessarily been the the promise that you were given as a child that do this, do that you're gonna achieve happiness that hasn't necessarily happened and he told us that in school he was like um you feel like i know a lot of you guys you feel that you come here you get your GCSEs, you go to uni you Whatever you graduate, you get a job, and then you're happy, and life is done. And mm. then from there, it just <laughs> plain saying it, he was like, nah. Yeah. He said, Trust me, I'm telling you right now, this is that's when life starts.
0: Right. This is the
1: easy part. Oh, right. Just get through it. But you don't, you never registered. And okay. as okay. As I've got older, And I look back at the man, yeah, and I don't don't even know if he'll remember me like that. I didn't have a relationship with him like that. He was just a a teacher there, but you can tell he had a heart for the children. And when I look back, I'm like, this guy was sick. Mm -hmm. He was a good teacher, you know, Mm -hmm. and you don't come across many people like that. But actually, yeah, that promise that we're told do this, do this, do that, and life is set, isn't reality Mm -hmm. at all. At all, there's so much more to it you talk about the people you get to a certain stage in your career and your life and whatnot and then you everybody wants to give back because i think it points to something deeper where you start to realize over time maybe not even consciously but on a subconscious level you start to realize you can buy more you can do this you can do that you can gather way more material items but to what avail and afterwards you start you start to you know you need something deeper like a deeper purpose and people start to search for that and i guess it sounds like you kind of went on that journey working in investment banking and running businesses and whatnot, and then over time, interacting with some young people and whatnot, you're like, nah, man, <laughs> I can't do Yeah, else.
0: I guess the journey wasn't deliberate though. The journey towards where I am now with Ultra isn't was not deliberate at all. So I'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just failed so many times that I just ended up getting a job, My entrepreneurial skills meant that without a degree, I could have a career in investment banking because I could pick up things really quickly. I was confident, I interviewed well, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And what had had happened was I fell into the promise that entrepreneurs are given. Meaning if you are a successful entrepreneur, you have a successful business, you have a best-selling book, you get up and you speak in front of thousands of people, that you'll be happy, that as a successful entrepreneur, it will give you a degree of fulfillment, happiness. And I had achieved a number of those things, but something was still missing. And that's when there was, I, I call it a growing compulsion. There was a number of things which pointed towards uh, what had gotten me there. Because, you know, every time I would do something which would people would deem as successful, the the it would always come up that, oh you know, you're from this background. So set against this background, what you've done is good. Mm. It was never good on its own. If I had a best-selling book, it wasn't Julian just had a best-selling book. Julian's had a best-selling book and he's from Harleston. If I went and spoke on the same stage as as a prime minister of a country, it would be, Julian's done that, it's good, but he's from a disadvantaged background, right? So, it would almost, for me, the part, and the reason why I say it became annoying is because it felt like I couldn't just be successful on its own. It was always weighed against my background. And the reason, and I can understand from the outside looking in, it's because, and I used to call it the kind of, not me, but the way in which in a microcosm, I used to call it the Lewis Hamilton or Tiger Woods effect, meaning you're not supposed to be there. But you've done well, right? So you're now kind of, um, you're kind of um, uh, the what you've done is amplified because of your skin color, because it's, it stands out. You're an outlier, right? So in a microcosm, in my industry, I was doing the same thing. We had what I believe is the first black-owned digital agency in Shoreditch. So at the time, we're talking two thousand and four, two thousand and five. There were three black guys on Great Eastern Street we were the only black owned company in the area. And as we then realized probably in the UK and probably in Europe in digital, right? In doing what we were doing, yeah? So, you know, and I made a video recently that when people would engage with us, they would think one of two things, either we were just hustlers, right? And we didn't know (laughs) what we were doing or we were really good i.e. the Lewis Hamilton and Tiger Uh, Woods effect. And it just so happened, the three of us loved what we were doing. We love tech. We love digital, right? We came from, you know, corporate backgrounds. We had a love for the fast-growing internet space. And we could put those two things together. And we were able to advise businesses, right? And so that gave us an edge. And when I realized that, okay, you can't ignore, right, what makes you stand out you can't ignore what makes you different the fact that people would ask you to come and speak at a conference at a school at a corporate event do not be under any illusion that the fact that you are black is one of the reasons why you're being asked to be there because in terms of intrigue value it's like Julian, go and tell them what you did. Go and tell them about about what you do. And I'm thinking, wow, they really like what I do. Nah, the reason they're saying, Julian, tell them what you do is because people will look at it as being different and odd, right? And I would be at networking. I remember I went to a networking event once, right? And, you know, people are standing around, you know, exchanging business cards. And one guy stopped me and he said, I know exactly what you do. I bet you're a personal trainer. And I just thought, oh my goodness, like, this is like the biggest cliche in the world, right? Mm. I was either a rapper or like music or something to do with like physical sport. I said, no, no, I run a digital marketing agency in Shoreditch and like, you know, but I said it in a way that kind of made it like a funny joke and, but I just thought, wow, like, you know, that's the perception. So if I walk into a room, that's what people are gonna, people are not gonna connect. To what I do in any regard, right? And so I just, and so that's what you call, that's now a barrier. That's what we call a barrier, right? And I think you do have really good teachers out there. I know a lot of them, we've worked with many of them, but that's not a system, right? So most people can think back to that really good teacher, right? Mm. But <laughs> it's a little bit like saying you shouldn't have to think about one really good teacher, they should have all been good. Yeah. Right? Why is it we can only think about one really good teacher? And it's not because of, and and again, being in the education space, I've realized it's not because teachers are bad people or they're incompetent or whatever it might be. It's because if you put a a good person into a bad system, you're going to get bad output. It's just as simple as that, which is why so many teachers have been leaving the profession in droves because they, they come in with a promise that you can change the lives of children, right? Mm. And then you realise that you've got to teach an area of the curriculum that no longer exists in the real world. Yeah. Like there was a teacher I spoke to, an ex-teacher I spoke to, and he said that <laughs> there was an area of the curriculum and it probably still exists where he had to teach the students about the semiconductor right, to teach them about electronics. And he said, Julian, the semiconductor no longer exists. It's no longer used in the <laughs> real world. Right. So he's sitting there thinking, why am I teaching these kids about the semiconductor? He said, I'm out, yeah. I'm out, I'm not doing <laughs> this anymore because I am, it's almost like I am complicit in their failure. I'm contributing to them failing in life because I know what I'm teaching them, it's not gonna help them. So do you
1: see ultra-education as uh, like, what do you feel like, complementing, Or maybe filling the gaps that the
0: traditional education system is missing out with our young people? So the word ultra comes from the old Latin, which means to go beyond. So ultra-education means, really it means beyond education. And so for me, that kind of states this idea where actually, and you said it, your teacher said it, your education doesn't just happen at school. Right. Um, I was in a meeting with a very big educational institution just last week, and they were talking about this idea of lifelong learning. It's not a new term, but for that educational institution, that's quite meaningful to them because they'd have to change everything about the way that they do things. Right. We all know, being in the professional world, that when you leave school, like your teacher said, that's the start. In any professional environment, you still have to keep learning stuff. You just do, right? Yeah. You have to keep learning, keep updating your skills. Um, otherwise, you just won't be relevant, right? Yeah. And so the problem is young kids and young people don't know that. They just don't. Yeah. They think their learning will stop at university. That's it. I've learned everything I need to learn. I've studied psychology, so I'm going to go and be a psychologist. That's what, that's what they're... Because no one tells them any different, right? Yeah. So it's not their fault either. So for me, it was about, okay, how do we make and how do we make an education ultra how do we go beyond the confines of what traditional education can provide and the way in which I did that because some people do it through um, sports some people do it through music some people do it through um, you know things like photography and chess and you know you could teach lots of life skills and leadership and teamwork through many different facets right the thing that I was credible in and that I knew about was entrepreneurship and when I'd look back, at my life against the demographic which put me as an outlier and made me this interesting thing to look at under a microscope. Go on, Julian, tell them what you did, right? Me thinking it's a good thing when actually there's a curiosity around it, which in some ways wasn't awful, but it wasn't what I thought it was, right? That whole thing, the life chances that had now gone up 10 or 20 times was because of entrepreneurship, was because of an accidental entrepreneurial journey, which taught me resilience, which taught me a work ethic, which taught me lifelong learning, which boosted my confidence from being a child who was bullied, you know, coming from a household of domestic violence, blah, 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 right? You know, all the saddest stories that every Mm. entrepreneur has come with, right? I had it too, you know, it's shared. I guess that the thing for me was that entrepreneurship helped to unlock that potential that I had. It helped to build the confidence. The only trouble with all of that, because people could say, well, you know, that's great for you. And you're right, it was great for me, one as one individual. But I thought, what about everyone else? What's gonna happen to everyone else, right? Um and and really, the the it wasn't so much the concern for me, it was by this time, and this was another um thing that compelled me was uh, as my daughter grew up as a child, uh, she would play in my home office. So she'd have her play things. And um, back then we used Skype. So when the Skype would, would, <laughs> would, would, would ring, she would know to be quiet and stuff like that. Right. And then after a couple of years, we had um, uh, a little barbecue at home. And, uh, you know, so it was family and friends there. And then she comes to the garden with seven or eight of her cousins and she says so they are all like seven eight years old and she says right everyone we've bought stuff for you to buy we've made stuff for you to buy and if you don't have any money we've made you credit cards too <laughs> and she proceeded to go around and give everyone these make-believe credit cards right and then they'd come out with the pictures and the stuff that they'd, that they'd made and and people looked at me like what are you teaching this poor child right he did know all this business stuff and the irony of it was i hadn't taught her a thing i hadn't talk to her about entrepreneurship or business at all, right? But she picked it up yeah. from watching me, right? Which again, is very normal. Children learn from their parents and they role model, right? And then once they role model, they they um, express that in a play format, right? So that's what, as far as they were concerned, they were just playing. They were playing at being business people and, and entrepreneurs, right? But what I realized, I looked at that and I thought, wow, so you've managed to convince seven or eight of your of your cousins to go away and do this thing. That's leadership skills. You've put them together in a team. You've created some, you know, a, a fake credit card, that's some financial literacy therefore. You've created some products. You've done all the things that an entrepreneur should do. And you've come out to a group of adults, right? And just proclaimed that we're doing this thing. And so I thought that's great for my daughter. It's amazing for my daughter. She's now 15. And like her confidence is like galactic on galactic levels. Right. But then I thought, but what about her friends and her cousins? What about everyone else? Because I then realized that the way in which we develop as humans is societal. So you might be confident, but if you are in a group of people that knock your confidence or are going down a particular path, that's going to influence you, right? We we know it. So I thought, hmm, I don't want my daughter to be the same outlier that I was, right? Mm. But what it proved was that by me doing nothing and simply just being who I was, her being around me, she pretty much learned entrepreneurship as a child. And if you speak to anyone in education, they'll tell you that a child can learn multiple languages and musical instruments by the time they're seven. You can learn entrepreneurship if you can learn Mandarin by seven right <laughs> so for me it was that was then the, that was the thing that was the experience and my my wife um uh, was a was a professional in early years so she was able to unpack some of this for me and that was the experience with my daughter that unlocked the idea of um being able to teach entrepreneurship to children that
1: speaks an important importance of environment. Because when you talk about the, when you, look, you take it back a little bit, actually, talking about the, the prep school. When you said the 10,000 or well, private school, something like that, I didn't even know that. I, mm. I, I did not, and 25,000 public. Correct. I, did not, I, I, thought, I didn't know it was that close. Because to me, mm. growing up here, yeah, it seems like they, they, I knew of one private school. Right, <laughs> right, 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 right. I knew loads of public schools. I yeah. didn't know of that many. Yeah. That's quite interesting. But it speaks to the importance of environment. So in the UK right now, there are massive wealth inequalities and they've been rise, um, increasing in recent years for whatever reason or whatnot. But the people who do well, tend to do well, more often than not, because social mobility doesn't happen as often as it should happen. But the people who tend to do well tend to come from certain backgrounds. They probably go to maybe some of these schools or come from very successful families already, and then they can and they're young they can say like for example your daughter how she's modeled you without you even having to teach her mm. if you've grown up in a family where you've got successful parents and whatnot you'll just model them without them having to tell you anything and over time you just pick up the skills that you need to be able to become successful it speaks to the importance of the environment that the environments that we immerse ourselves in the environments that we create and um maybe we, maybe how we should be a bit more intentional about the environments that we're people that we're around the environments that we're in um Yeah, in order to try and drive some change in our own lives and to be successful.
0: So what we're trying to do with ultra education is to engineer that environment. So we're trying to engineer an environment where children can learn in a way which meets the most optimal um, framework for education. And and, and I'll give you a practical example because that sounds quite etheric. When we were um, running some of our first clubs, um, it was in a school in Harleston. And I was waiting outside um, because one of the parents was lost, so I was trying to direct them. And then as, as all the kids went in, we had like, four of our facilitators in the room. And one of the parents, a dad, as we were looking into the room, he said to me, he said to me, Julian, what's your, what's your secret? What's your like magic, like, you know, uh, in terms of what you're doing here? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I'm looking at my son, and he's sitting there, fully attentive, and he never does that in school. He, s- he said, You know, what's the secret sauce to what you're doing? And I said to him, You know what? I said, There is no secret sauce. It is a one to five teacher student ratio. That was it. So, mm. in a school, there's one teacher to 30 students, right? Anyone can tell you with any level of common sense that that's too many (laughs) students for one teacher to effectively get, not even, because in school, it's just about knowledge transfer, right? Has knowledge transfer happened, yeah? For me, I'm like, okay, knowledge transfer is great, but I can just Google that. So for what we want to do, I knew that it was about the person and the individual. Entrepreneurship is very much a personal development journey as well. So I thought, well, we can't do that. I can't look at one facilitator to be able to do that with 30 kids. So what we're going to do, we're going to have one facilitator to, to five kids. And that was max. Sometimes it would be less than that. Sometimes it would be one to one. So we had 20 kids in, the, in that room and we had four or five facilitators. Yeah. And I said to him, that's probably the first time your son has had that much face time with a teacher he looked at me and said, yeah, that's right. I said, kids love attention, right? They love talking. And especially if you ask a kid, if you ask even an adult, what are your hobbies? What do you love doing? What are you really interested? What are you passionate about? People will talk for days, Mm. much less a 10-year-old child, Mm. right? And chances are they've not been asked that before. So I said to him, that's why your child's engaged, because we define an entrepreneur as someone who does what they love and they make money from it. So our job when the child first comes into our learning environment is to ask them, what do you love doing? What are you passionate about? What do you do without your parents having to tell you to do, right? And they light up. You can see it. And we've seen it so many times. Time The kids light up. I like pets. I like food. I like sleeping. I like football. I like PlayStation, right? And then what we do is we then say, oh, okay. So, and this was like pre-KSI and you know the whole YouTube gaming thing so I would then say to kids you do know that um you could kind of do content on YouTube reviewing games and then maybe get sponsors to pay for it wow we didn't realize that and I remember there was um there's one workshop we did where the parents were in the room and I did this thing I said so what do you love doing right And um, one of the kids said, I love watching films. And the parents were looking at me like, yeah, turn that into a business, Mr. Julian Entrepreneur. (laughs) And I said, so I said, "Um, do you know what the job title is for someone who reviews films? And one of the teenagers said, yeah, a film critic. And I said, well, there are film critics on YouTube right now and bloggers on the internet right now who are getting paid a lot of money to review films, right? And you can see the parents like, Damn, there's business behind everything, right? But it just so happens and it's completely accidental that there is business behind everything. Entrepreneurship and business drives everything around the world. You know they say money makes the world go around? Well, entrepreneurs mm. make money go around, right? Mm. So for us, there is no, we know there is no child who doesn't want a bit of extra pocket money right? Who doesn't want some money to buy some Jordans, to buy, (laughs) you know, that PlayStation game that their parent doesn't want them to buy, to buy some Fortnite credits, whatever it was and whatever it is. So, and also the thing is, is that kids understand money. They do want, they do get that money is a valuable thing and that money can help them to do stuff. They get it, right? And to the sharpest extent, kids, unfortunately, understand the difficulties that money can bring within a low-income household. They see it, right? So when we then say, do you realize that you can do what you love and make money from it? And we show them practically how that's happen- how that happens, they're now unlocked. And so that environment, so we've created that environment where they can do a couple of things, where um, we will listen to whatever you have to say, right? We're not gonna rubbish it or diminish it. We will then help you to practically, step by step, do something with that idea, no matter how big or small, right? Mm. Um, And we will give you the language to be able to articulate that with everyone else. I I remember there was um, a a student who came to us and we said, what do you want to do? I want to create a rocket ship company, right? Because he had seen what Elon Musk had done with SpaceX. So, I said to the facilitator, so this this was actually a feedback session that the facilitators had given to me. They, they said, Julian, one of the kids wants to, wants to have a rocket ship company. What am I going to do with that, right? And I said, it doesn't matter what it is. What matters is that we teach him the mechanics of what goes behind a rocket ship company because none of the kids that are starting businesses now, the chances of them having that business in five years' time is minimal. That's not the point. We're not trying to turn them into... Richard Branson's today. What we're trying to do is teach them the mechanics of business because we know that those mechanics, they can carry them uh, into another experience or into another job or whatever it might be. Right. So I said, what you do, you go back and you say to him, what's going to be the name of your rocket ship company? Let's draw the logo. Who's going to, um, what's a rocket ship going to carry? Um, is it going to help put satellites up? Is it going to transport stuff? Is it going to take astronauts? How much do people pay for rocket ship services, right? Who were the competition? And you just go through all of that just innocently as if it's really going to happen, right? And this child just went on a madness for the next three months in our, on our program, just blowing his mind with the possibilities of this rocket ship company, right? And the parents said to us that that child has never been happier. Because they were just allowed to dream, right? I mean, that's what entrepreneurs are told to do, right? We're told to dream. But then when you, when a kid dreams, we shut it down. Mm-hmm. No, you can't be a dancer. Dancers don't make money. No, you can't have a rocket ship company. You can't be an entrepreneur. You can't be an author. You can't get into tech. That's what adults typically do, parents and teachers. We shut kids down, right? And mm-hmm. we confine them to what we think they're capable of or what we think we're capable of. Right? So if we're not capable of becoming a speaker or an author, we're not going to empower a child to do that because we don't think we can do it. Right, So again, we wanted to create an environment that just didn't have any of those controls in place so that kids could just do what entrepreneurs are told to do, which is to dream. Uh, I love that, man. That's so sick. Uh, I know you mentioned that most entrepreneurs
1: don't necessarily... so most entrepreneurs don't necessarily go on to be successful and i've forgotten the exact numbers but Mm -hmm. most entrepreneurs fail within x amount of years or whatnot most startups as an adult let alone as a child are still trying to navigate and you know find their way in that kind of thing but with all of the young people and children that you worked with have you got any specific like success stories that come to mind of some children that maybe have gone through a particular program or you or your facilitators are mentored and they've gone on to be successful in whatever endeavor they've They've got into.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can give you two or three examples. Um, we had um, I mean we've got countless actually, but two really good good examples. Um, we've got a girl called Lauren, um, who uh wrote a book called The Power of an African Girl. Um, she's from a Cape Verdean background. She wrote the book over lockdown. Um the family went through a, a lot of upheaval in that time. And Lauren, who was eight or nine at the time, wanted to share her experience because in her words, she said she wanted other little girls who were going through tough times to feel okay. And you just think from a child, for a child to say that, that is very compelling, right? And she wanted to celebrate the strength of her mother, right? Okay, cool. Sounds like a nice, cute story, except that um, she then gets published in Waterstones, Right, the book starts to do very, very well. We then they then realise that she's the youngest Cape Verdean author in the country. So the whole Cape Verdean community comes together. The school now is on board. They do this massive celebratory event. The book now gets published into Portuguese. Um, she gets awarded, you know, recognition from the local mayor, and so on and so on. Right? Um, I went to one of her events, um, and I was on the panel. And when we opened up for q and A, I I was sitting next to Lauren and Lauren, maybe 10, 11 now, there was a six year old girl who took the mic, like tiny little girl, took the mic and she, and she walked up and she said, Lauren, I want to write books just like you. Well, and I looked at that yeah, and I thought, yeah. I just, my mind blew because yeah. I thought now what's happening is instead of role modeling being adult to child, role modeling was now happening child to child. And that is way more powerful, right? Another example, um, young man called Talha, who just had an eye for photography, right? Um, He uh, went on to win, he's won about three or four awards. He won the Saatchi Gallery Award earlier on in the year. Um, Again, he was awarded um, by uh, his local mayor. He's been featured in a lot of local and national press. He's a finalist now for another competition. And if you look at his work, his work is stunning. I mean, he, again, is like 10, 11 years old, but his work is comparable to that of of an adult professional photographer. And, you know, he's currently being mentored by an adult professional photographer who, you know, says that, he's just got this talent, it's just something, it's like he's born with it, right? And so um, he is now helping us to, uh, we have a, um, a newly kind of spun out platform called Yo Buddy, Youth Business Directory. It's, um, it's like Amazon, but just for kids' businesses. So we've got about 100 sellers on there, about 300 products. So all of the kids that over the years have been producing their products and services, they all put it into one place. Challenge was um, a lot of the product photography wasn't great. But now we've got this 11-year-old photographer who can go and knowledge share with all of the other young entrepreneurs um, to help them improve their, their product photography, right? So you're talking about skills upon skills upon skills. You're talking about peer learning here. Um, and then, you know, last one, we've, we had two kids, one called Marcus, who's got a Caribbean treats thing called MJ's treats. Um, he's won West London um, Young Entrepreneur of the Year two years in a row now. Um, And it's like Caribbean inspired treats, you know, makes it with his family, Um, you know, really inspiring young man. He was featured on a Virgin Media campaign um, when they were doing some work around um, organisations that were empowering communities throughout COVID. And when he first started during lockdown, um, one of the facilitators said that when he when he first started, whenever he would be asked, whenever he was asked a question, he would always look to the side of the camera would always look to the side to get, to ask mum, get approval from mum. And then at the end of the programme, when he went to deliver his final presentation, he didn't look at mum once, right? He just owned that space himself. When he went to do the Virgin um, promo, I remember, and I mean, he, I I was here, mum was on the other side. There was like three cameras, 10 lights, you know, 20 microphones, right? Marcus is like this little, you know, nine-year-old, and he's sitting on this stool, and he's got, like, the sound man, he's got the director, he's got the interviewer, all star- all these things staring at him. And Marcus just sat up, and he just delivered, like he'd done it a 100 times. And me and the mum were just, like, tearful, like, wow. I mean, I know adults that couldn't do that that would be super intimidated by that experience. Marcus, 10 years old, was like, nah, this is cool. Like, I know what to do now, mm-hmm. you know? And so, you know, I could go on and on and on, but um, I think the important thing is that we even, you know, we don't know where it leads to, right? So the kids that have been successful, and again, there were so many more, um, it's what we what we realise we're doing is creating possibilities That's what we're doing. People say we're creating young entrepreneurs. That is true. That's the mechanical term for it. But actually, we're unlocking their potential, which creates possibilities, right? Because we know um, talent is is everywhere, but opportunity isn't. And I've always said that if you can't um, access opportunity, you should be able to create your own opportunity, right? Um, Because if there are barriers and opportunities aren't going to come your way, create your own opportunities and that's what these kids have been doing they've been creating their opportunities they've been but but it's just by starting something when Lauren wrote the book she didn't know she was the youngest Cape Verdean author in the country when Talha first started photography he didn't know he was going to win a Saatchi Gallery Award when Marcus and Mia started doing their thing they didn't realise they were going to win a West London Business Award and you know uh, uh, be on stage with like 200 people looking at they didn't know all of this stuff was going to happen right Mm. Um, but what it does do is it, when we talk about building confidence, right, and building self-esteem, imagine having that story, you're, you're not even a teenager yet, mm. right? Imagine the possibilities of what could happen when you're, you know, a teenager, 20s, 30s, it's, for, for us, it's mind blowing. That's what happens when you're allowed to dream,
1: isn't it? When your dreams aren't necessary, when they aren't um, crushed or taken away from you or quenched over time. When people, when entrepreneurs, when we go into entrepreneurship, we do it because you have a you have a dream, you have a hope. You have a hope that one day this thing that you've started is going to become whatever you've got envisioned in your head, that you're going to be able to make, drive whatever change in your life, your industry, whatever. You do it because you have that hope and you believe it's going to happen. And over time, a lot of people, when you're younger as well, like you said, maybe parents and other people, and it comes from a place of love because they feel that the best thing would be for you to go and do this and that, like, that's the safest path and all that kind of thing. And over time, that hope, it just gets quenched, it gets quenched one by, bit by bit, bit by bit until you get to your adulthood and you're like, you're just doing something. You don't necessarily love what you're doing. You're doing it because it's what you're supposed to do or whatever. You don't dream anymore. You don't have any more hope. But then those examples you shared are like, very tangible as to like, when you just allow them to just like, you want to be a rocket ship? Like, um, engineer, cool. Let's go and work on it. You wanna be a photographer? Cool, let's work on it. Something that uh, a lot of I think when you're older as well, yeah? And something I've suffered with, when you get a bit older and um, you, uh, you know, like you you wanna start a business, you wanna start something, you have a massive vision as to where you want it to go to. And then you get paralyzed by, by inaction, by looking at how big the thing is and looking at where you are now. I'm like, where the hell do I even start? But if these kids, you're saying, he you didn't know who was going to be in the win that Sartre or be in the Sartre or whatever. They didn't know that she was going to be the youngest Cape Virgin author or whatever. I just, oh, I like writing. I want to do this. Let's do it. Step by step. Little by little. Little by little. Let me just do what I love. And then if that happens, great. Of course, you have your vision. But if it happens, yes. If not, I'm doing what I love. And I'm happy with that. I'm not good with that. With you, yeah, I want to... Take it a little bit back, yeah? You spoke about, you mentioned a couple of times, your entrepreneurial journey has been like a succession of different accidents. And that's how you ended up, how you've ended up where you are now. What was the, how did you get into it in the first place? And what was maybe that first accident you feel that sort of set you on the trajectory you're on?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the first accident was the first business that I set up with my girlfriend when I was 18 and some friends of ours. And it was a fashion company. Um, we were watching uh, a music video, I think it was TLC, left eye was wearing this spray painted dungaree. And you know, I just quipped to my girlfriend, like, you know, how much would it cost for you to make that? She was like, ah, oh, it's fabrics and spray paint, maybe 20 quid. And then I had a light bulb moment. I thought, well, if you could make that for 20 quid, I could sell it for a hundred because you can't you can't find it, right? And that was the kind of the genesis to a fashion company she would design. She taught my friends and I how to cut fabric and to sew. We, you know, in my friend's one bedroom flat in Stonebridge, we had about six sewing machines, overlockers, fabric and patterns all over the place. and yeah we would we had a fashion company as um and the fashion company and it made sense because it was aligned to a music collective that we had so you know we would all do music and we could look fresh and you know we could make some money selling the clothes that we made so it was you know that whole entrepreneurial element of the hip hop culture we Stumbled upon it. We were able to action it because of the skill set that my that my girlfriend had, um, and we knew it would solve a problem for us, but it would also solve a problem for other young people out there as well, right? You could buy you know unique, custom made clothes that you couldn't find anywhere else, and so for me that was like saying it was my first experience of making money. Didn't have a job before that, but it closed the entrepreneurial loop whereby you were inspired by something, you saw a problem that you could solve, you then solved it, and you could repeat that process, right? So once I had done that, I knew I had the capability of uh, starting a business based on an idea. I knew I could do it, I knew I could do all elements of it. It would be different for different types of businesses. And I then went on a journey of trying my hand at almost, I you know, I always joke to people, I've tried almost every business you can imagine, right? Like. There are businesses that I've tried that I've even forgotten about, right? And it's because no one had told me that you shouldn't just chase the money. You shouldn't just do a business because you think it makes money, right? So at the time, as as a young man, I was just start, I was going into businesses because I just thought there was money at the end of it. Uh, I had no experience. (laughs) I had no insight. had no passion for this particular thing. Um, you know, I was doing everything, man. I was, you know, the most comical one was thinking I was gonna be like, a like I was gonna buy and sell cars. I was gonna flip cars, right? And I mean, I knew nothing about cars, <laughs> right? I could barely change the oil in my own car. And my friend and I, we managed to make some money from a previous business. We went up to, to the Northampton auctions, didn't know what we were doing, like in an auction, right? Like it sold a scene, innit? You could be buying a complete lemon. You have no idea. Unless you, you're supposed to be a mechanic to go up there and, you know, mechanics just listen to the engine. They know if it's done or not. We hadn't had a clue. So we, me and my friend went up there, bought these two cars. We thought we were the man. <laughs> Literally, as we were driving on the M1, one of the cars just died on us on the road. Oh, and we just, just had to leave it there. Right? And I sat there thinking, we know nothing about what we're doing here. We know nothing about it, right? And, you know is like, we did that a number of times, right? Um, Until I realised that actually the businesses and the entrepreneurs that do well at the startup stage, they have an insight into what they're doing. They have a passion for it. And then along came the digital marketing element and that became a success because it was something that I was genuinely interested in and passionate about. And it was that business that taught me that, doing what you love was an, was a, cru, a critical and crucial component to starting a business. No one had told me that before. A
1: lot of our audience that listen to this podcast, they're going to be people, um, a mixture of people, maybe some corporate professionals who may be interested in going to entrepreneurship later on, maybe some entrepreneurs. Um, a lot of them are going to have some kind of a social thread, though, behind them as a person or the work that they do. Uh, for yourself, when you tra- made that transition from... i know you've run businesses and worked as well it's been a bit of oath but when you made the transition from the um, working in the city and making decent wages into entrepreneurship and then also the transition from i don't know the exact timeline but i'm guessing was the digital marketing then from there was it into ultra ultra. yeah so those two transitions i'm interested in one from the work into the marketing or a business world on that side um what was your situation at that point in time? As in like, were you married and did you have children? And the transition, how was that transition period? Would you go back and change anything if you were to do that again? And then after that, the transition from that into the Ultra and then two you know, different businesses, but the Ultra has got the more of the, the social threat behind it. With the, the Ultra compared to other things you've done in the past, how do, do you approach it differently? Do you run it differently? Like how, what's the difference there?
0: Yeah, great question, man. You should do this for a living. Um, <laughs> the first transition bit, I mean, that was, um, yeah, that was that was—it a, was a good question, because I think it's something that is a massive challenge for people that want to go from a safe, secure, particularly corporate job, into doing their own thing, right? So this is my experience with that. Um, yeah, the, myself, my two colleagues, we were all in some kind of, some form of corporate. Two of us were in were investment banking. My other colleague was already in, he was already working for a digital agency that was just about to be acquired by Google at the time actually. And so on the face of it, no reason for us to leave. Like on, on, a, on an economic level, we were cool, right? But from, a, from an, an ambition standpoint, we weren't cool, right? Um, so when we, uh, so first of all, we ran the agency on evenings and weekends. So we, you know, the term side hustle wasn't a- a- out there, right? but we were five to niners, yeah, um, and we would pick up some clients. You know, I remember taking calls in the, in the, in the broom cupboard, and you know, <laughs> just the typical stuff, right? And I became, I became so good at my job, or I deliberately became as efficient as I could in my job, so that I could work on my own business at the same time, right? Um, But when it came to crunch point, what I was trying to do in that side hustle stage, in that five to nine and weekend stage, what I was trying to do was trying to create enough revenue from the side hustle business so that we would meet our outgoings and we would just step neatly from one level of revenue from our jobs into the level of revenue in the business. Right. That that didn't happen. We, we we, We couldn't on a part-time basis, get the revenue of the business high enough. It got to a point where we knew we had to make the leap. We knew we had to put in more hours, right? And so we went off to raise some money. um, And at the point where, at the point where I had to make the decision as to whether or not we were going to trigger this raise, the guy who was helping us to do the raise, because he knew this was the critical point. This was the point where, okay, this it was a point of no return, right? He said to me, if you believe in what you're about to do, if you believe that you've got the capability to make this digital agency work, then do the raise. If you don't think you have the ability and you don't fully believe in it, you don't have to tell me, but if you don't fully believe in it, he said, don't do it. And that's all I had to hear. Because I fully believed in it. Like fully, mm. like I was. You know, I knew he was essentially saying that, you know, the way in which you are going to de risk this raise is based on whether or not you think you're capable of making the business a success. And I knew I had the capability, right? And so um, we had to, and that was the thing, that capability was the thing that gave me the leap of faith that I needed. Because right? yeah. I knew I could work hard enough. I knew that there was, a, I was in a growing market. I knew that there was demand because we were already securing clients and stuff, but we just couldn't bring, in, bring up the revenue high enough. Right, So if I took that, if we raised some money, took that leap, um, there was, you know, it was risk capital. Um, could we work hard enough? Could we exercise our capability to make it work, right? And so, and you know, we managed to do that. Um, it wasn't all smooth sailing because the 2008 credit crunch happened literally two years after we started. Um, yes, I, I I was with my um, my now wife, um, our first daughter was on the way, and so stakes were high. Right? It was no, it wasn't a play play thing anymore. Right, I had to get this right. So at that time, I was going from a safe, secure environment to this digital entrepreneur thing where I'm the we're the only black guys kind of doing it. We weren't, there wasn't loads of black people doing it. So there were going to be barriers, right? So we were up against it. It wasn't like, you know, um, something that we were stepping into that was super favourable for us. But against all of that, two things. I loved what what we were doing. I genuinely had a passion for it. And I was, I was just interested in it, really interested in it. Um, and I knew I was... I knew I was capable. I knew that professionally we were capable enough of running a business, right? So I guess for people that are listening who are in that transitionary period, and I speak to people like that all the time, um, the question you've got to ask yourself is, do you think you have the capability? Because it's not just about the passion right because you can be passionate about something and not be good at it like I used to be a passionate rapper I wasn't very I wasn't very good right? <laughs> like, I know loads of passionate rappers that aren't very good right I know loads of passionate beat makers and they're not that good right so you can be passionate about something but not very good I knew I was I knew I was really good at it I just knew I was because people were already paying us um so are you are you capable are you good in are you are you good enough to be able to produce something that people will pay for repeatedly right first question and then are you in love with it cuz the, the love the the being in love with it bit isn't just about isn't just for you it's important for you because um like yourself tevin you've you know explained all of the difficulties it takes to get to where you are but because you you have found a purpose in what you're doing that is more important than the difficulty if you didn't have that the difficulty would make you say, it's not worth it, I'm gonna stop, right? Mm. And so for people that want to start something, it will be difficult, more difficult than you think, right? But if you are in love with it, or if it's purpose-driven, if you're driven to do it, then that will enable you to get over all of the difficulties, right? But then more commercially, if you are really passionate about it, you'll just deliver a better product or service, like a like one that people will, people will feel the passion that you've got for whatever it is you're delivering. And that looks like value. And that value is what will give it a monetary exchange with that customer or client, right? Um, But there will be a point where you will have to face an unknown quantity, right? You, You will probably have to take a leap of faith at some point um, I would love to tell you that you would just step from your job into a nice, you know, entrepreneurial thing. Even if you've raised a million pounds, whatever it is you've raised, you've raised hundred grand, whatever it is, right? If it's, if it's risk capital, you've got to pay it back, right? Um, even if it's a grant and you've not had the experience of um, managing money of that amount, you could waste the money and you may not be able to get it back again, right? So, you know, it, it, again, it's not just a financial thing. Oh, I've raised money to go off and do it, right? Um, you've got to have the capability and the passion. If you've got those two things, then leave your job, man, <laughs> <Take> your boss <laughs> later. But um, yeah, and you know, I, I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound irresponsible with the advice. Like there's also comfort levels. The, the last thing I would say, you know, some entrepreneurs would say, ah, just being soft on people, but there was a comfort level thing meaning you do have to be able to sleep at night with your decision. Like, don't let people tell you to do something that you're not comfortable with. Like, don't let the go-getting entrepreneur tell you, ah, just leave your job, man. What are you dealing with? Just leave, forget your boss. Do this thing, you'll be fine. And then you do it on someone else's say-so. Don't do that either. Do you know what I mean? Because you're the one that's got to live with it. You're the one that's got to sleep at night, which is to some degree why, you know, inspiration, even though I don't like inspiration and motivation, it can help to give you the the comfort that you or the courage you need, right, to take that next step. Um, And, and more practically than kind of inspirational motivation, that's why it's good to have like mentors mm. and coaches, because they can help you to think about how you can become more comfortable. Because a lot of the stuff you need to do, you don't, you don't need to do it tomorrow morning. You know, a lot of, Companies are cool with people having a side hustle, blah, blah, blah. Do you know what I mean? So there, there are more ways today to de-risk what you're doing. The only thing I would say is that start doing some version of what it is you want to do, right? And this is what we say with the kids, right? Um, if you want to... Uh, You know, kids will come to us. I want to start a fashion company. I don't want to have caps, hoodies, trackies, ballys, everything, right? Mm. We're like, okay, just start with one. (laughs) Which one do you like the most, right? Start. I like ballys. Okay, maybe you shouldn't start with ballys. Maybe you start with... (laughs) with, uh, Like, you know, what do you want to start? We start with one thing first and action that one thing. Do you know what I mean? Um, Because they can, you can chip away at it. You don't need to think, okay, I need to leave my job and then do everything at once. Now, you can do some version of it, right? Before you do, like... The full idea.
1: Yeah, yeah, and then that approach in the the ultra, the ultra education, and then the, against the digital digital marketing, yeah, Digi- against digital marketing and maybe some other ventures you've done in the past as well. How does it differ? Because the ultra is slightly different in the sense that of course you've it's a CIC, I think, right? Correct. Yeah, so obviously it's a it's a social company, but you still got to make money. But then you've got a strong social purpose behind what you're doing. How do you balance that? And then do you approach it differently to other things you worked on in the past?
0: Yeah, so it is night and day. What I'm doing with ultra education, um, the challenge for me is that I'm not a social entrepreneur, and you know, I'm, I'm saying that all my funders and backers and sponsors are going to be like, "Not working I with this like, guy what? anymore," right? Like, like, what? What did he just say? But um, but no, I'm I'm an entrepreneur that has discovered a social purpose. There's a difference, right? Um, meaning, meaning that actually, um, the things that have made ultra education successful are because I'm an entrepreneur first, right? So it means that, you know, I look at revenue models. I look at how we're gonna sustain ourselves. You know, I look at all of the things which in the social sector um, is challenging for most people, right? Um, The marketing of it and all, you know, I bring that enterprise experience to the social sector, which is the reason why in the time that we've existed, you know, just as humbly as I can state it, we've created more impact. Um, and we've created more impact than organizations that have been around, like, you know, decades longer than us. And it's not because we are better at social impact, it's because we are better at entrepreneurship. And it's not so much better, We that's just our background. Do you see what mm-hmm. I mean? We have a background in entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. so we can bring that to social impact. So. I think mostly in the social sector, people are impact. They, they come at it as an as an impact person, and then they build up their their enterprise skill set. I came at it with an enterprise skill set, and I'm building up my social yeah. impact yeah. Um, assets and skill sets. Right, because I'm still learning the verbiage that is being used in the social sector. Um, you know, these in terms of impact, right? The the impact we've created has not been because I'm a super smart impact guy. It's not. It just so happens that entrepreneurship is a great vehicle for impact. Mm. I didn't know that. I had no idea. That's why I was saying to you that when we were running our clubs, someone had to tell me we were creating social impact. I had no idea what that even meant. So. I I can't take credit for the so for the impact of it if you, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It that was an accident. It just so happened that entrepreneurship is a great vehicle for social impact, and it just so happened that I have an entrepreneurial journey that's credible, that I can then add some value. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. There's a lot of just so happens there, right? Now when you zoom out, those just so happens really is down to that's that purpose. That's why I say, you know, you can only just so happens for so many times until you realise that was meant to happen. I was meant to do that. That was my purpose. And I would, you know, I say to my advice is that um, what Ultra Education has done for me personally, um, not in terms of money, but in terms of um, my growth and my fulfilment as a human, far outweighs by light years anything I've done before, right? Mm. Um, yeah, because all of the stuff I've done before, there's no there's no impact in it. Yeah, if we help a business do well, there's a feel-good factor, you high-five, but eh, it's not that special. You just help someone make more profit to go and buy another Rolex, right? <laughs> mm. That's not super, do you know what I mean? Fulfilling, yeah. right? Um, the reason why teachers go into... That, that, that sector, the reason why youth workers go into the sector is because when you see the light bulb moment happen with a child or a young person, when you know you've helped a family, when you know you've helped a young person turn the corner, there is nothing, there was very few things in life that matches how amazing that feels. Very few things in life, right? The thing that I wanted to do because of the tech background, and in tech, people keep talking about how do you scale? How do, you, how do you repeat that? So when I came into the social sector, I thought, well, I've done it, I could do it, my wife can do it, but can we scale it? Can we get other people to do it? Then we were able to train other facilitators that could do it. Some could even do it better than we could, right? And then I was thinking, okay, we've seen a hundred kids this week. How can we see a thousand? How can we see two? We've got 25 kids that have come to the fair. How can we make it 50? How can we make it hundred? How can we make it 150? In my mind, I'm always thinking about scale, right? And again, that is a, that's, that's a difference. So usually what would happen in the social sector, if you are an organization based in Brent, which is which we are, it is the norm, it is the accepted norm that if you're based in Brent, you just you just serve the community in Brent. No one told me that. I was serving people from Barnsley to Brighton, Yeah. right? If a family called me up from, there was a family in, uh, where was it? It was like someone like Hull, right, mm. said, "Can you help our, my son start his business?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> no one, had, like, but and other social enterprise would might have said, "Sorry, our funding is only for Brent." I didn't know that's what you're supposed to say, right? <laughs> so I'm just I'm helping everyone, right? Mm. And for me in the rearview mirror, that's 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 a restriction to the social sector. You shouldn't do that, like you know, and it's dictated by funding because you know funders will ring fence. You can only work with 12 to 16 year olds and it can only be in Brent. Like, so what about the kids in Harrow and the ones in Barnet and blah, 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 right? So for that reason, we'd still take the funding, but we would create other revenue streams and other models that allowed us to um, serve communities unrestricted. We didn't have to ask anyone because we could make money doing other things, right? Consultancy, contracts, delivering workshops, delivering talks, blah, 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 blah partnership stuff, right? Um, which were unrestricted, which meant that we could just deliver the impact wherever we saw it. I didn't come into this thinking borough specific, do you see what I mean? Um, and e- even to this day, that's still a, a, that's still something that I have to unpick with people. People were like, oh, you're West London based. Yeah, we're based there, but that's like saying Amazon is based in America. So they only deal with America. Like yeah. you wouldn't say, Amazon just serves America, would you? So why does Ultra only have to serve Brent? Do you see what I mean? Yeah. But it, that's the thinking of the social sector, right? So, so you ask, what's the, what are the differences, right? Mm-hmm. And so these are, these are some of the differences. The mindset in the social sector is different to the mindset in the commercial sector. I know I'm stating the obvious, but there are pros and cons to both, right? In the social sector, um, the thinking is, quite, is very local. And, and to some degree, sometimes it, it needs to be. But there is very little thinking about how to scale and how to become suf- self-sufficient, right? Um, and that's because it's, it is it, it is tough, right? Because you're adopting a model that someone's given you. You're saying, okay, as a charity, as a CIC, this is how you operate. I didn't come into it like that. I came into it like, this is how I want to operate. Is there a model that can fit how I want, how I want to operate, right? Um, in the commercial sector, very good at scaling, very good at making money. But then, I guess, it's the reason why the planet's in the mess it's in, right? <laughs> because mm. the commercial sector has no conscience, right? Um, and the more people make money, the more they just want to make money. And they might break off some of that to give to a little a little initiative here or there, but they don't really care about it. So it's kind of the idea of a social enterprise. A social enterprise is supposed to be a mix of both, right? It's supposed to be part charity, part commercial organization, right? Challenge with that is that it's it's difficult to be able to um, traverse both mindsets. It's difficult, right? I'm not saying it's impossible. There are people that do a great job of it. But from what I've seen, uh, it's it's difficult to be a successful enterprise, purely commercial, and then have, and then create loads of impacts at the same time. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, the organizations that, have, that seem to have done it really well are organizations which have a um, a more well-worn commercial model, right? Like a coffee shop, for example, right? And then they might employ um, um, ex-offenders, right? right? So it's a coffee shop model. Everyone knows a coffee shop. Everyone knows coffee shops can do well blah, blah, blah. The only difference is the impact bit is you're employing uh, ex-offenders, right? Um, So models like that tend to work quite well. Um, Whereas service-led models, which are like programs and workshops, the kind of stuff that Ultra does, um, it's more, it's trickier. It's trickier to make that that model work. And the thing that makes my heart sink is there was a young man who came into um, our studios, Take Your Shot, about two weeks ago and Um, the individual there um, who brought him in introduced me. And I said to him, um, you know, we were talking about just, you know, kicking game on the whole um, working with young people thing. And then he said to me, yeah, but, you know, you can only do so much based on the funding. And I thought, you see what I mean? Your Mm -hmm. entire narrative is based on funding. So you want to do more but you can't because of funding. No, think more broadly than that. That's what I mean, you're thinking too social. Mm, mm. Thinking social impact means that you only think you can do something if you get funding. Thinking entrepreneurially, you think you can do anything. You've got to find your opportunity. You've got to find the opportunities, right? Mm. And so that's, you know, know, so to answer your question, they're light years apart. I've not found, I think there's, for me, I think you need to have a hybrid model, but even that hybrid model, I've not found the perfect iteration of that yet. Um, but that's kind of what I'm working towards. When you're talking, it reminds me of this book, it got me thinking of this book, The
1: E-Myth. I don't know if you've mm, read it. I'm familiar it. with it, yeah. Yeah, where it's like, um, I read it so long ago, so I'm going to, because you've got particular terms to use, but basically, like, approaching businesses like an entrepreneur. And not necessarily. He doesn't. Obviously, he's not talking about social sector now. But that's what's coming to mind because Mm. he has like you got people who start businesses, but they're um. What's he? I think he calls them technicians. Mm. So people who work. So let's say, for example, you open a bakery. Yeah. Yep. And then you're you're a baker. So Mm. cool. I'm a baker. I'll open a bakery. And then in order to scale, you're just doing more work, Mm. but there's only so much output. You can you can work twelve hours, you work eighteen hours at some stage, you can't scale past yeah. that. And then you don't but you don't want to bring other people in. And you don't want because they're not gonna bake the way you bake. Mm. So you're approaching <laughs> it like a worker. But then in order to scale, you need to approach it like an entrepreneur. And that's how you can scale. And then put systems in place so that you can scale and it doesn't require more of your time in order to grow a business. And although slightly different to what you're saying, that's what was coming to mind, like approaching your business or your your world like an entrepreneur and not necessarily like a social entrepreneur. You approach it like an entrepreneur and you've got a social impact behind the work and what you're doing. Uh, Have you got any particular like books or resources that you would point to that you have had a profound impact on how you work? Mm.
0: So first of all, um, you're absolutely right in your kind of um, comparison around how that, um, they approach the kind of, way in which business people approach an, or a worker might approach a business and an entrepreneur it, it is this it is it is very very similar um that that analogy of how I've approached the social sector um in terms of books it's a really good question I spent most of the 2000s up until um kind of between 2000 and 2010 um I read so many books on business personal development wealth all the rest of it until I got to a point where I realized they were all saying the same thing. And I, 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 you know, I'd like to say books like Think and Grow Rich, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, books like that um, had had a profound impact on kind of shifting my, my mindset around things. Um, except that in practice, People are gonna hate me for criticizing thinking girl rich or rich dad poor dad, but in practice, and I can only say it because they were written before you know a number of these issues existed. Like, it doesn't work for everybody, right? And more to the point, you can't take one book and think that's gonna solve all your problems, right? Um, because I think that's what a lot of people do. They're like, "This book's gonna just solve my problems for me, right?" Um, I think what you've got to do is take from those books as many as you can—books, audio books, podcasts—and figure out a blueprint for you. Because how Tevin became successful is not gonna be how you is not gonna be how you're gonna become successful, right? Um, you have to figure that out for yourself. And that's difficult. It sounds easy, but that's very difficult because no one's taught you how to do that, right? Um, So what we find ourselves doing is listening to the stories of other people, listening to these frameworks and tools and blueprints and trying to piece things together. We try things, fail, try things, win, try things, fail again. I mean, this is exactly what I've done, right? Um, Until I figured out, Actually, what I need to do is do it for myself. No one can give Julian a blueprint for Julian. Only I can do that. But that takes some introspection, which again, people aren't usually taught. It takes a degree of managing your ego. Um, and it takes a self-critical look at what you are good at, what you're not, what your limitations are, etc. And then it takes a review of that on a very regular basis, it's got to be it's got to be quite fluid, right? Um, so, yeah, I guess um, you know. So in terms of in terms of resources, um, you know, your favorite podcast on business is is probably pretty good, right? Whatever that might be, your your favorite personal development podcast. I mean, there's so many of them out there. There are lots of really great ones. Um, but again, don't just say, because this person did that, that's what I'm gonna do. You can't you can't do that, right? Um, you can't wear their size shoes. You've got to find your own, right? You might like the look of them, how they fit, how that person experiences it, but you've got to find the fit for yourself. And that just takes some time to kind of wrench through, but you've got to be okay with, with doing that. Um, so I guess the greatest resource I could offer to entrepreneurs is just working on yourself. Whatever that means for you, um, for me, that means having a routine. So, you know, before we were recording, you asked me, you know, how many times do I go to the gym? I go to the gym like every day, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like five, six times a week. And it's not, but I go one, I don't go because I'm trying to be hench or that's not why I go. Mm-hmm. I go because it's um it gives me the physical outlet I need. It gives me um, a disconnection from thinking about work. Um, It gives me some quiet time, um, and physiologically, I just need to pick up heavy things and drop them. Right? (laughs) There's a physiological response that anyone who does any physical activity, whether it's football or running, you know, there's a physiological benefit, right? Um, That that you get because the rest of the day I'm sitting down pretty much, right? Um, But you know i make sure that i protect my sleep i make sure i get my 8 hours sleep i don't play with my food i make mm-hmm. sure i eat um i'm always i don't i am always staying hydrated um so those are some basic things like level 2 things are in the last 10 years i've actively removed stress from my life just actively right um because stress is the number one killer of many things, right? And what does that look like to you when you say actively remove stress? Yeah. So, if anyone listening, right, gets your notes out on your phone or your pen and paper, you could write down now 10 things that stress you out. We can all do it. The problem is that removing those 10 things mm. requires often a new behaviour or some difficult conversations or some discipline in yourself, right? Um, so people might be stressed out at the fact that they don't get enough sleep. Go to bed earlier then. Oh, I try, but I can't lock off. That's a beh- that's behaviour. It's not you're not, it's not like you're incapable. Do you see what I mean? That's just a change in behaviour. Um, over 60 or 70% of what we do on a daily basis is the same, right? The things we do, it's the same. We do things the same way each day, eat the same things. Do you know what I mean, right? Um, but it may not be serving us. It may some of those things might be stressing us out. We might have a relationship with a friend, family member, who, whoever it might be, who's just always stressing us out. Maybe inadvertently, right? Stop taking their calls. <laughs> like put them on pause for a minute. No, for real though. Mm. Or, you know, there may be, often it's situations and people and environments, right? You might be in a working environment that stresses you out. You can't leave that working environment immediately, but, Um, You know, I know when I was in corporate and I was having a bad time, they were just friends that I'd made in corporate and we would make that time together in the workplace bearable, right? Um, You know, like there are ways that you can chip away against the stress. Um, It's not often about just removing it. You can't just remove it altogether, but sometimes you can minimise it. You can chip away against it. Um, But it does take courage often. And that's the thing that, um, is difficult for people because um, it's not when people when we all say it's not easy to, to, to make these behavior changes but the, the the reason why it takes courage is because you're facing something that is either unknown or something that is difficult or something that you're afraid of right The reason why we don't have a difficult conversation with a friend or a family member or a colleague is because you're afraid of the outcome. You're afraid you're going to hurt their feelings. You're afraid it's going to mash up the business. You're afraid it's going to hurt that relationship. But you're already hurting. So what's the difference? Is one choose your hurt, right? And 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 I'm not I'm making it. I'm not trying to make it sound easy. I'm just trying to make it sound like a process that's doable, right? And what I will say to you is that in me doing that, and I've been doing it. You know, I've been chipping away at it for ten years, right? Um... It means that the, um, the energy cost of dealing with stress, I can now put towards other things. Because then when people ask me, Julian, how come you're able to do so much, right? you got a gym, you got family, you've got time to go on holiday, you're doing podcasts, you're running this business, you got that. How come you're able to do so much? It's not because I've got more time in the day than Beyonce, right? Mm-hmm. It's not because I'm more capable or special than anyone else, right? Because I genuinely don't think I do, I am. It's it's because I, am, I, I cut away at stuff that either in terms of physical energy is gonna drain me, emotional energy or mental energy is gonna drain me. So it means that I've just now given myself 30 or 40% more time or more energy or more space in the day than someone else to be able to do the other things that I'm doing, do you know what I mean? Um, so now I'm able to uh, Now I'm able to see, if something is coming down the road, could be anything, some, something big or small, I know where to place it so it doesn't stress me out, or, or where to, how to manage it so it doesn't stress me out, you know? Mm. Um, so it means that I delegate a lot. I would rather pay someone to do something than me do it if I know it's going to stress me out. Do you see know what I mean? Because I know that um, people will be like, You know, because there's a lot of stuff that I used to do that um, really was beneath, was it it was below my hourly rate, if you know what I mean, right? Uh, You know, I I would joke with the family um, when they'd ask me to do stuff, and I'd be like, "Do you think Barack would do that? (laughs) (laughs) If Barack ain't doing it, I ain't doing it, right? Let's get someone in to do that. Do you know what I mean? Let's get someone in to do that because if Barack wouldn't do it. We're gonna get someone in, right? And they're like, "But you're not Barack." I'm like, "I'm, I'm, I'm trying, right?" <laughs> but but the point was, it was just that if you want to do like if you want to do stuff in life, right? There's other stuff you're gonna just have to stop doing. I'm stating the obvious, but it's there are there are things which you're just gonna to have to stop doing. People you're gonna to have to stop engaging with, not altogether, but as much. There are um, and and then there are there are there are things you've just got to reframe. Right. Um, You know, we can't escape this, all of the stresses, but we can reframe them. Do you see what I mean? And part of that reframing that that I've done is when people do come into my space, knowingly or unknowingly stressing me out about stuff, I reframe it into, okay, how bad is this really? I know Mm. it's stressing me, but I've been through worse. So this isn't that bad. Mm. Number two, I'm like, do they mean to stress me out? Probably not. So maybe I should just tell them, look, you're stressing me out a little bit, chill out. Mm. And then they're like, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to, boom, boom, bam. Or is it? Is there something that they are challenged with, which is just being projected onto me? Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And actually they just need me as an outlet because they know that they can let off on me and I'm not going to go hard on them, right? So mm. I'm just a device for them. Do you see what I mean? You can reframe it in ways that don't stress you out anymore. Um, and then that energy that you would have used to be stressed out, I can you can use to go off and do something more productive.
1: Yeah. Nice. Max, um, what would you say has been your one, or is there any one major learning that you've had through your entrepreneurial journey? Mm. Okay. I'm sure, I'm sure there's been a lot. But...
0: Yeah. Um, it's something I say all the time, which is to do what you love. And... The reason I, I hesitate is because that phrase is often received in an oversimplified way. Um, but, what I, but what I can say about doing that is that um, if you do that, you'll put in the work required because you won't see it as work, right? Um, but on a more, On a, a, I guess, on a higher level, um, and this is the message. This is the message on our website that I give to parents. I say that, um, like, if you were, if you ask, if you ask a mum, what do you want for your child, right? Like, if you ask a dad, what do you want for your child? The dad's going to say, I want my child to be successful, right? Mm. Typically, if you ask a mum, the mum's going to say, I want my child to be happy, Mm. right? Cool. So, if you then look, if you then pull that, if you extrapolate that out. into adult life, and you think, all right, cool. We spend 40 to 60 hours a week at work, and uh, a lot of people hate their job. So it's a big, huge chunk of your life to not like, yeah? And some people are like, no, I don't hate my job. It's all right. still a huge chunk of your life to just be all right, right. I'm trying to offer a scenario where that 40 to 60 hours a week you love That's what I'm trying to propose, right? Because for me, if you love the work you do, your chances of happiness go up, right? Now, happiness isn't just down to your work, right? There's other facets of your life that can make you happy or unhappy, but things bleed into each other, right? If you're unhappy at work, the chances of you being unhappy in other areas of your life are kind of high. If you're unhappy in other areas of your life, the chances of you being unhappy in your work are kind of high, right? Things mm-hmm. bleed into each other. We're not just, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not um, mechanical in that way. Um, I can't solve your relationship problems and all the rest. Mm-hmm. I can't do that, right? What I can say is that in your work, whether you're working a job or you are working for yourself, love it, and that might change too. This is the other realization, right? Um, and so I think you know, this kind of I say there's there's levels to it, insofar as um I loved the work I was doing in the digital agency until I found something I loved more which was impact and then I loved delivering the impact until I loved the, the the idea of scaling the impact right um I now love the idea of scaling the impact I'm now more in love with making it more sustainable on my own terms without having to ask anyone for anything I'm in love with that idea now how can I how can I sustain ultra on my own. I don't have to ask anyone for nothing. Right? Um, that's 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 the next so it changes, right? What mm. you are in love with doing, it changes, right? And you should allow yourself to, you know, to make that so. Um but ultimately I think that going back to this promise that we're given as as kids and young people about, you know, get go to school, get good grades, work hard, get a good job you know, do these things and you'll be happy, right? That's the promise that that the world gives us. And if we hold on to the happy bit, all I'm saying is that if you do what you love in your work, which takes up a significant part of your life, both in hours and in in thinking, we probably think about our work another 40 hours, right? Mm. After the actual physical doing of the work. If you love doing it, then yeah, the chances of happiness just go up.
1: Talking about sustainability, impact, et cetera, what's next for you and for the Ultra, Education Ultra group in general?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So if I were to wave a magic wand, in five years time, we'd be a national company. So have a footprint across across the UK. Um, There's a number of ways in which we're looking at doing that um just sc- scaling our schools and club program potentially through a franchise model which we've piloted which has been successful um using technology so we've got the yo buddy platform yo buddy e-commerce platform um which is which is growing in traction all the time so scaling that gives us a faster ability to scale um and really celebrating the work of our kids because those stories travel um, those stories give us millions of eyeballs, um, and so it's about how can we um, build on what we've what we've done, and I'm building on it. Meaning, um, now in the last few years, we've been in the process of doing the boring stuff, putting the systems and the processes in place, so that we can repeat what we've done. Right, um, doing it. Being successful at something is only good if you can do it again and again and again, right? And that requires systems, processes, all the grown-up stuff in a business, right? <clears throat> and so for me, that's taking me into more of a leadership space and thinking how and thinking how to do that, um, thinking more deliberately about um, partnerships um, and, you know, dare I say, politics and policy and you know, the the macro view of the world and where all of that's headed. Um, So I think really we have proven that um, entrepreneurship can help move the needle on the development of children and young people. Uh, Now what we want to do is to scale that, make it nationwide um, and make it worldwide. That's
1: sick. That's so good, man. And as we prepare to wrap up, uh, final question we always end with, I feel like you've answered it already, mm. but let me ask you, you may want to frame it slightly differently. Um, so 1,000 Voices we're interviewing or speaking to 1,000 Blackbridge on social entrepreneurs, change makers, people who are essentially driving change in their lives or in the communities that they work within. What advice would you give to another person who maybe wants to create the same sort of impact that you're doing, maybe in a similar industry, maybe in another industry, but what kind of advice would you give to someone like that? Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, uh, I guess practically, I would say to get some kind of coach or mentor that has walked the path you're about to walk. And the reason I say who has walked the path you're about to walk is there are, for me, two types of mentors, right? There's the mentor who is like the old wise sage, right? Um, who may be uh, much older than you, lots lot, a lot more experienced than you. Um, and there's a lot of value in that. And then there's, like, a more big brother-type mentor, big brother, big sister-type mentor, who may only be just a few years ahead of you because they can give you um, very practical uh, approaches and, and tactics that you can a- employ today in your business, very kind of hands-on stuff, right? Whereas the the old wise sage can give you very kind of macro, deep, you know, learnings, and mm. but... And if you can couple that with the actionable tactical stuff from the big brother, big sister type mentor, um, that you should, if you could do that at the beginning, because I didn't didn't have that at the beginning. If you could do that at the beginning, it just means your chances of pain are less, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And your your chances of success are higher. Um, I had mentors. I had great mentors in the past. They just weren't... In the industries that I was going into, that's that that was my only misstep. My only misstep was not actually looking for mentors who would who were actually in the same space as me. They were always doing something slightly different. Um, the, you know, there was value in it as well, but it just meant that there was a uh, uh, there was a chunk of knowledge that I had to figure out myself. And there's enough smart, successful people in almost any industry you're going to go into today that has done it before and you can benefit from from their, from their insights and their experience. So in my own business, we're doing that very deliberately now, right? So with Yo Buddy, I'm speaking to people who have a lot of experience in the e-commerce space, in the marketplace space. And, and, you know, and because of our because our events are becoming more and more popular, you know, speaking to people who are specific in events. Right. Um, So I'm just being more laser targeted with that um, approach. And that is the kind of advice that I would give to someone who's starting out, be really laser focused in approaching the coaches and mentors who are specifically doing um, or specifically in the place that you'd like to be.
1: That's it, man. That's it. I think interview done. Wrapped thank up, you, man. Thank, thank you for having me, man. <laughs> thank you for coming down. This was a great, great conversation, yeah. man. I appreciate you coming down and sharing all of those bits of wisdom that you shared about us on your journey as well, man. It's been sick.
0: Thank, thank you, man. Thank you, yeah, man. thanks again for having me. Nice space, man. Really impressive. Uh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. We're
1: trying. We're trying, man. Yeah, man. Uh, uh, if, to wrap up, if people want to keep up to date with yourself, with the book, the work that you do, how can they best do so?
0: Yeah, so the website um, and on socials, we are ultra.education. Um, the e-commerce platform is yobuddy.com, Y-O-B-U-D-I.com. And yeah, you'll find us, um, uh, again, across all the socials. Um, say hi, we'll say hi back. Come down to check us out at our offices at Take Your Shot Studios in Mumby Park. Um, yeah, we're just here to collaborate, support as many um, children, young people as we can.
1: Nice. And then lastly, before we wrap up, have you got any closing words?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Definitely subscribe to the yeah. One Thousand Voices podcast, Tevin. You've been doing an amazing job. I appreciate um, that. You know, I know you've you've got a whole bunch of um, podcasts under your belt. So you know, I hope to see you just continuing that. We need voices like yours in this space, and I think um, what you're doing by amplifying those voices in the way you're doing is it's invaluable work. So please don't stop. <laughs> um, and yeah, anyone out here listening, please share, you know, um, this episode, obviously, but <laughs> <laughs> but the podcast platform with friends, family, because I think it's, it's really great work. Thank you, man, I appreciate it. So
1: that's that, thank you for coming down once again. Like Julian said, if
0: you can share, subscribe, it does
1: help. We're on a mission to speak to and interview 1000 Black British Changemakers. Shift the dial, put out more positive stories and inspire some people along the way. So if you can do, please do share, subscribe, leave us a review. That helps a hell of a lot as well. And um, yeah, hopefully we can work towards getting all of these 1,000 inspirational stories out there. But well, that's that for now. Thank you for coming to the podcast once again, Julian. Thank you, Tevin. This is 1,000 Voices. And for now, people, we're
0: out. Cool. Cool. Wicked, right, man. man. Yes. Thank you. Yes, all um, good, man. man.